We are this morning in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been doing a series on basic Christianity. Paul writes to his first letter to a young church and uh, the struggles that they're having and the things that he is concerned about and he lays out some very basic concerns in the life of a believer and the, in the life of God's people at the church. And so we have been walking through as we get to, uh, to this passage in Thessalonians. We're in 13 to 18. Um, <clears throat> when I... I preach, you'll notice as I preach through books and as I go, I, I take things as they go. I don't necessarily go looking for trouble. Uh, but trouble finds me because of the way God's Word is that way. You preach the full counsel of God and we hit these things. So I don't mean to be controversial per se, but at times I am. I am because I and people in the church disagree on some things. And one of the things we're going to talk about this morning is something that, that you and I may disagree about. Uh, and you may be surprised that we disagree about it. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you what I think and why I think it. And then I'm going to tell you some other things that's less controversial and hopefully more uh, in, the, in, the, in the vein of comforting and applicable in our daily lives. So here we are, First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in 13. Hear then the Word of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and He rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. And therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. And as we come this morning, we long for wisdom and clarity. We long to understand. But more than that, we long for your word to impact our lives with power. We long to receive the comfort of these words. Impress them on our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's just put it on the table. I don't believe that Jesus returns in two stages. I don't believe in the rapture the way the rapture is typically taught. I believe He comes once. One time. One more time, period. I believe He comes and He comes and is done. I don't believe that He will rapture His church away before a second, second coming. I believe in one glorious apocalypse that we just sang when the skies will be rolled back like a scroll and the trump will sound and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise and all will be gathered to Him once for all and forever. He will gather His elect from the four corners. Now, I'm in pretty good company though. 
Because this has been the understanding and the teaching of the church for almost 2,000 years uh, as, a, as a universal teaching, as an undisputed teaching, as the only teaching of the church for almost 2,000 years. The church believed that Jesus would come one last time. I was doing a little bit of reading for this and a guy named Thomas Lee <coughs> wrote a, a, a paper or a short book on the survey of the doctrine of the return of Christ and the anti-Nicene fathers. Now the anti-Nicene, anti means before, post is after, anti is before, an antechamber is a chamber before the chamber. So the anti-Nicene is before Nicaea, it means it's the earliest fathers. From the Apostle John to the Council of Nicaea, that window, the earliest fathers apart from the Bible. So these are the guys that were within years of John. The guys who lived right after him. And that whole window of time up till the Council of Nicaea, as all the Scriptures were completed and captured and bound together, and he says all of the early church fathers in that window believed in one stage. Believe Jesus comes back once. There's a second coming period. He actually wrote in the second introductory paragraph before he actually does the survey, just in the introduction, in that opening paragraph, he said there is mention of only one stage in the return of Christ. And that was the universal teaching and understanding and belief of the church for the next 1,800 years without exception. And you can study it yourself, you can look for it, and you can Google it, and you can do all the stuff, and there are reasons why they say it's okay that it's come this late. But we see people like Calvin commenting on this passage saying that the voice of the archangel will summon the living and the dead to the tribunal of Christ. That's what happens at the second coming, that the tribunal where all are raised and judged at once. This is the way Calvin read the passage. It's the way all the reformers read the passage. But in the mid-1800s, 1830s and 40s, some new doctrines entered into American Christianity as well as British Christianity. It was really in Britain where some of these guys, J.N. Darby, and then finally Schofield after him, where they lived. There were several new doctrines that they introduced into Christianity that had never for 1800 and some years been a part of our thinking or our doctrine. Their doctrines have come in and they've now been understood or called as you would identify them as premillennial dispensationalism. Darby began to teach that God had two separate peoples. He had two separate plans for those peoples. And that His plan for the Jewish people is separate from the church. And that when Christ came, He paused His Jewish program and He started a Christian program. And that at the end of His Christian program, He would take the church out of the way, rapture, and finish His original program, which had a real Jewish flavor to it, and finishing some of the promises and intentions of the Old Testament, which came to a, a, a radical halt with Jesus. And so what happens with the church, us, is a parenthetical. You can go back and read all the early dispensationalists. They will tell you that our age, the church age, is parenthetical. It's not, what's a parenthesis? It interrupts a sentence. And does something a little bit different and then carries the sentence on. And we're, we're a parenthesis in the, in the sentence. And the sentence is the Old Testament Jewish thing that's paused to do the church and we rapture the church out and we finish the... <clears throat> and that was... Because of the doctrine of two people, you really needed a doctrine of the rapture to get one of the people out of the way to finish the, do, the, the program of the second. It was all new. It was all new in the 1800s. 
brand new? How does it get to be where in many ways it has become the dominant view in American Christianity and in some ways British Christianity? And part of the answer is through the Schofield Reference Bible, which is one of the earliest reference Bibles and popularized the view. And there were other uh, ways that it, that it got propagated. But it went from not even being something the church had ever even thought of before to being the dominant view in American Christianity. In the last 175 years, it's become so popular that sometimes I tell people I don't believe in the rapture like that. They look at me as if I'm not, are you a Christian? That, that's the, and sometimes we grow up think, you know, being taught something or learning something in a certain stream of Christianity and there are meadow streams out there around town. And we don't realize that there are folks in other streams who believe differently, who understand the Scriptures differently, or that there's other ways of thinking. We tend to take it in with our mother's milk, a certain way of thinking. I tell you all this because this passage is where the doctrine of the rapture really comes from. If you read those, I was reading John MacArthur who does believe in a rapture and he says rapture teaching comes from three passages really. This one, John 14, 1-3, and 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 51-58 to 58 or something like that. Um, he says those are the three that really teach it. Matthew 24, where a lot of us go, he says doesn't teach the rapture. Even as a, even as a dispensationalist, he would say it doesn't teach the rapture. But this passage, they all say does. In fact, this is the key passage from which er- it, it, you get rapture everywhere else. It's from here. The word rapture comes from verse 17 because it says that those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And that word caught up is the Greek harpazo. And so where do we get rapture? Well, that word to be caught up or harpazo, when it's translated in the Latin vulgate, is raptura. And so that's where the doctrine of the rapture comes from. This idea that saints are caught up. To be with the Lord. And so the word rapture, and it becomes in its sense, in its own, its own doctrine, and understanding what does that mean, what happens at that time. One of the major distinctions that rapture theology makes in Jesus' two comings, that, that rapture, the first stage, it's part of the second coming, but it's a two stages. They say in the first stage, He comes for His church. In the second stage, in the second second coming, the full second coming, He comes with the saints, the ones He came and got last time. Right, so that's the distinction that they often make. The coming for, and then when He comes with His saints. And they say that that's what we see in this passage. One dispensational writer puts it this way. He says that the rapture of Jesus will come with the clouds to take His people to be with Him. So He's going to come for them and take them. In His second coming, Jesus will come down to earth with His people to defeat His enemies and to begin His reign in Jerusalem. So that's the main difference. In one, he comes to get and leaves. The other, he comes to stay and do his business, right? To establish uh, his reign over the earth. And so they say that this passage in verse 15, where he talks about his coming of the Lord, and you'll see in, in verse 15, it says, Those who are left until the coming of the Lord. And the word there for his coming is parousia. It's a word that you probably have heard around these discussions. It's a word that appears throughout the New Testament and describes that time when Christ comes back again, His parousia, His visitation, His coming to His people. And it says that the parousia in this context then is to come and get them and to take them away. Part of the problem with that is if you look back at chapter 3, verse 13, He says, so that you may so that He may establish your hearts. He's praying for them that the Lord would increase their love and all these things so that He may establish your hearts 
in holiness and in blamelessness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus, at the parousia of Jesus with His saints. And so you see, you see Paul in chapter 3 talking about the coming with the saints, and in chapter 4 coming for His saints, or so we say. But he makes no distinction between the two. He doesn't say, I'm talking here about the second stage. You know, when I say coming, I mean, you know, that other coming when He comes again. You know, and that He does them out of order. And then in chapter 4, they're going to say it's a different coming, and it's the one that comes first, but He talks about the second one first, and the first one second, but He doesn't tell you anything to help you sort that out. Which is the same problem with Matthew 24. The whole first half, two-thirds of chapter 24 of Matthew is about the second coming. And then he shifts and they say the second half of it or last part of it is about the rapture. But the problem is he does the second one first and the first one second. He makes no differentiation and doesn't tell you. So you have to keep cutting and pasting and moving them to make them work. And in this coming here in 3.13, he says he's praying that they would be established and they would be blameless in holiness before him at this coming with his saints. But they've already been with him for seven years, right? If you believe in a rapture, right? So what's the point of praying that at the, at the coming of the Lord with his saints that they would be blameless? Why wouldn't he be praying for the next event? That he would be, they would be blameless in holiness when he comes for his saints and not after they've been with him for years and years. So there are some issues in the order of the way these things are done that it just doesn't stack up. In verse 17, he says, when those who are alive and are left will be caught up together with Him in the air. When it says that we meet Him in the air, it says that the, the way that the rapture theology will go will say that when it says that we meet Him in the air, it means that we're leaving. That's where the main thing comes from, right? The, the rapture is He comes and they leave, and the second coming is they come and stay. And clearly, in this passage, because they meet Him in the air, they... They're leaving. doesn't say they're leaving, but it must be because they've met Him in the air that they're leaving. The problem is in verse 17 when it says that they come to meet Him <clears throat> in the clouds to meet the Lord. That to meet, Greek is ace apontesin. It's two words, to meet, ace apontesin. It's in the infinitive which is like to walk, to see, to... It's in the infinitive. It, it, in the Greek, it is an almost uh, idiom used for a formal meeting of a guest who is coming to visit you. All right? And it's used this way. It, this phrase appears in the Bible only three times, here and two other places. So let's look at one of the other... You know, first, that cultural idea. That, that It's the idea of a public welcome. It's a common cultural practice that when a victorious army was returning to your city, that a crowd would form and go out to meet the army and they would come back in one great procession. Or if you were a dignitary coming to visit my city, then we would put together all the prominent people and dignitaries of the city and they would go out to meet you and accompany you back so that you would enter the city with some fanfare and with a, a train, with a, an entourage, so to speak. We see that this is the way that the Bible uses it. If you look at Acts 28, 15, and 16, it says, when they heard about us, they now are the Roman Christians who hear that Paul and his company are coming. It says, when they heard about us, they came as far as the Forum of Appius in the three taverns to Ace Apontesin to meet us. Right? And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage that they came out. That's 
Those two places, you can look it up, Appius and the Three Taverns, were about 25 miles outside of Rome. And it says the Christians on hearing that Paul was going to visit their city, that all the prominent, the pastors and the leaders and the elders, went out to meet him. And they met him at the taverns and it says they turned around and came back. And when they entered Rome, this, that, and the other. In other words, going out to meet him to Asa Pontes in was simply to go out and to greet and to welcome. Not to leave. To come. As his entourage, as his train. John McNewton commenting on this passage said, they who shall be alive at his coming shall be collected together and prepared to welcome him. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, all the Christians, he wrote about a hundred years before these doctrines became. So it was a common way of thinking of it. That's the way that the passage was understood culturally and biblically as what was going on. To go and meet and bring them in. I'm not trying to be argumentative as I've said. I'm trying to explain as best I can that, that the passage has been understood by not, not only through history, but still by large branches of the church it still believe that there is one second coming. That all those things that will play out leading up to the second coming, we believe He's going to come. I believe this passage will happen. You know when it says that the skies will be rolled back like a scroll and the angel will command and, and He gathers His elect from the four corners of the earth, what will it look like? It will look like this. Right? And it will look like Matthew 24. That's what it will look like when He gathers His people. Not necessarily to take them and leave, but to gather them as He comes in a victorious train of conquering His enemies and establishing Himself as Lord and King over all. If you want to talk about these things, I love to talk about them. I'm not, I'm not one to argue or get mad, but if you like to talk and you want to, buy me a cup of coffee and I would love to chat about these things at great length. All you got to do is push my buttons and you can watch me go. Uh, so, you know, buy me coffee. That's one of my buttons. And then, you know, ask me one of these things and we'll talk. You know, I've, I've, uh, in fact, I printed out the eight, re- eight differences between the rapture and the second coming by John Ankerberg. I'm <laughs> reading through them and just all the ways that I'm like, no, no, no. The way we use Scripture is so important. And I would love to walk through some of that stuff if you, if you would like to. But... Uh, these things you'll find. Well, let me move on. I, I don't believe that this passage is, is about that per se. He says it. He says it in chapter 3. He talks about His coming in chapter 1. He talks about His coming in chapter 3. He talks His coming in chapter 4. He talks about it in chapter 5. And in 2 Thessalonians, He'll talk about it some more. And He never differentiates between any comings. He just talks about it again and again as the great hope of believers is that Christ will return. There will be a resurrection. There is a life eternal. So will we be with the Lord forever. And as He writes this passage, there's no controversy in it for Paul. Right? There, there aren't two views at this point. There's only one. And at Paul, his point is verse 18, right? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is an encouraging truth. The Thessalonians were concerned about people who have died. Paul was with them and he taught them these things and told them all about Christ's coming and the resurrection. And since he left, people died. And so they're writing to Paul. They're concerned. You said Jesus is coming the resurrection and we don't really understand how this is all going to play out. And people have passed away since you've left. What about those people? And Paul answers their concerns. He writes to them. They're a little confused about their eschatology. Is that surprising? We have it, they didn't have one thing written down. And they got, you know, we've got it all written right here and we're still a bit confused. How does it all come down? You know, how does it all work? So 
So they were a little confused about their eschatology. Paul, what happens? How, you know, when, when the Lord comes and He meets us, what, what about those who've died? Where are they? What are they doing? Are they going to be with us? Are they part of this thing? What's going to happen? And Paul answers their fear in 13. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's a euphemism for the common euphemism for death. I don't want you to be uninformed. I'm going to give you some sound teaching, some sound doctrine about those who have died before the Lord has come back. Let me tell you how it's going to go down. There's a lot of anxiety and fear in the ancient world. If you lived in the ancient world, you know, pre-Christian ancient world, death led to a dark and murky, uncertain underworld. A cold place about which there was little known and no hope. And no hope. And so these guys, if they have died, how does this all work together? There was no hope in death for those who were facing it, for those who have lost loved ones. There was only a despair. They're lost from us. It's no different today. We've replaced the dark underworld. There's not very many people, if you went out in the culture in the mall and that believe in a dark, cold underworld, But it's no better because we've replaced the underworld uh, with nothing. With absolutely nothing. We have the same fear and uncertainty. What can we say to someone who doesn't know and doesn't understand these things? What can we say if you have a belief in that nothing that don't worry, their personality and all that they ever were, their existence has been utterly annihilated as if they had never existed. At a secular funeral, that's all we have to say. They're gone. As if they never existed. There was no hope. There is no hope. We might have some nice memories. But what hope do we have to offer? And that's where Paul steps in. And he says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. And the whole world is full of a darkness where there is no hope in death. It is a scary, scary, unknown, uncertain thing. And Paul encourages them to know the truth that will set them free from fear and anxiety. To know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he says, do not grieve like a godless world. They live and they die without hope. But not so us. We have great hope, he says. Our hope is grounded in the historical resurrection. You see it in 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and He rose again, even so. These are the historical past facts. This is history. That in history He lived and He really died and He really rose again. And He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And so in this past grounded historical fact of Jesus' life and resurrect, death and resurrection, we have hope. Even so, even as Christ is raised again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him all who have fallen asleep. They will rise again. Right? It is not over. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, those who are alive will also be gathered up. And so he says, you know, our hope is grounded in the past. It guarantees our future. We believe in Jesus. His sin atoning death for us. He conquered sin and death. And death. And so there is life 
and hope and resurrection on the other side. Not like Lazarus rising again to this life only to die in this life. But on the other side of death. Never to die again. So even so, through Jesus on that day. In other words, those who are united to Christ by faith in this life, those who come to know Him and love Him and put their faith and their trust in Him are united to Him by His Spirit that is poured out on us, uniting us together as His body of which He is the head. If we are united to Christ in life, we are united to Christ in death. Death does not separate us. Right? That's what he says at the end of Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall life or death or the future or the past or sword or famine or whatever it is? He says nothing in all of creation can separate you from Him. This is what he wants the Thessalonians to understand. For those who are facing death, for those who have lost those whom they love, to understand this Whatever happens, we belong to Him. And so in verse 15, he says, whoever happens to be alive also, not just those who are dead or united to Christ, but those who are alive. We who are left until the coming, whoever happens to be here at that point in time. When Paul says we, there's this whole discussion of whether Paul thinks he's going to be there and he's going to be part of it or, or not. And you know, I would take the we that Jesus has, we who are alive, it happens to be us right now, but it might be after we're gone, already some have already died. And so Paul says, we who are alive, whoever that is at the time, will be caught up to meet Him in the air. We also will rise, so to speak. And so he says, let me tell you how it's going to go down. Verse 16, right? Let me tell you how it's going to go down. First thing, the Lord Himself is going to come back. He's going to send from heaven with a cry of command the effect of which will be the dead will rise. The authoritative command of God. He will, he will come down with a shout of command that will raise the dead. The voice of the archangel, the herald of God who will come announcing and preceding Him as His herald. The, the King has come. The Lord is among us. The sound of trumpets, the fanfare of the arrival into a city or into any place, the fanfare of their arrival, this is not a secret event. They're shouting and trumpets, and the Lord Himself descends. As the lightning comes from the east to the west, so shall it be at the coming of our Lord. And He brings with Him those in 14 that He says, even those who through Jesus have fallen asleep, He says, He will bring with Him. And in verse 16, it says, these are the ones the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, a cry of command, a shout of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ are the ones He brought with Him, right? In verse 14. And they're the ones in verse 16 whose bodies are raised and reunited. We wait for a resurrection. Sometimes I don't know that we know that. Sometimes I think we take the, the fullness of our comfort is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is a great comfort, my friends. But there's more. That's not the end. We're waiting for this day. This is the day. The day when the dead in Christ, those who are disembodied spirits who are with Him, are reunited with their risen and glorified bodies. Our destiny is resurrection. 
At every funeral, I stand at the graveside, and I sometimes think it's like an afterthought for some folks. And I'm like, no. My friends in there, we talked about the hope in Christ. And here, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we, plant, we do not plant the body that will be like a seed. But that which will come, we sow it in dishonor, but it will be raised in honor. We sow it in weakness, it will be raised in power. We sow it a mortal body, but it will be raised immortal and glorious. And there is a day to which we look that goes beyond the day they went to be with the Lord. But this day, when His body is reconstituted and united in its fullness in the resurrection to be with the Lord forever, never to be separated from Him again, this long-anticipated rapturous reunion between Christ and His church as they meet Him and enter in to the fullness of His power and glory on the earth together. And so the feast, Christ and His church begins. So with this glorious picture, the hope that we have, He gives this application. I'll close with this application, which is really His application in this whole text. His application is, my friends, verse 13, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He says, encourage each other with these words. That whether we are awake or asleep, whether we live or die, we will share in that coming of our Lord and be with Him forever. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. And He says it in that same passage in John 11, that, you know, that even if you die, you will live. Death is swallowed up in victory for those who are in Christ. And so we grieve differently. We grieve differently. But we do grieve. And sometimes I've heard it taught that because, because we have all that hope, we shouldn't grieve. It should be a happy occasion. And all we do is celebrate. And my friends, that's easy if you're not the one who has suffered loss. But it is not. I don't believe it is our calling not to grieve. I believe that we are allowed to grieve. We should grieve appropriately and healthy. It should be tempered with hope. Jesus in John 11, it says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, He was deeply moved. And then Jesus wept. And I've heard some say, well, He wept in anger. He's angry at death. He didn't weep over the loss of Lazarus. He, he wept over the enemy death. And he hated what it is and he's moved by what it has done and so he's, he's angry about death. And I would say, sure, that's true. But when Paul says, weep with those who weep, he's thinking of Jesus. And his weeping was real. I have no Gnostic Jesus. He was moved by Mary's weeping and he wept with her at the loss that she had suffered. He shares her pain. And He weeps with her. And I think it's important because I think Jesus understands how we feel to stand at the graveside of one whom you have loved who has died and to weep with those who weep. He knows what it's like. He's been there and done that. Their leaving creates a hole in our lives. And if you've lost someone, you know what I'm talking about. They've been a part of your life for how long? 
To lose someone you love creates a hole. There is loss. We suffer loss. Yes, a reunion will come. And this is why we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope. We have great hope. And I'll never do a funeral. I never do a funeral without saying we have gathered here today for a few reasons. One is to say goodbye. In a sense, to grieve our loss. But the other is to remind ourselves of the great and precious promises that are ours in Christ. And that death is but a sleep. And from sleep we awaken. And we awaken to life and to hope and to this future that we dream about. But this future is yet far enough away that if one I love is taken, there's great pain. But even as we grieve their absence and loss, we know it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole picture. The day of awakening will come. One day Christ shall come. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a great cry of command. And the dead in Christ will rise. And the archangel will announce His coming. His glory. The trumpets will sound. And the people of Christ will reign with Him forever. Jesus' resurrection is a pattern and a guarantee for our own. And for those who trust in Christ, we have this hope. But I will say that it is, <laughs> that it is through Christ alone that we have this hope. That death is swallowed up in victory in Christ. And so, have you this hope? Have you bowed your knee to Jesus? And trusted Him in faith to be your Lord and to be your Savior. To be your soon coming King in whose hope, in whose coming you have placed your hope. Have you given your heart and life to Christ? Do it today. The Bible says tomorrow is promised to no one. And we know this. It comes like a thief in the night for many. Unexpected and unknown, but through Christ. You don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have the hope of a resurrection unto life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us without hope. We thank you that you have given us your son Jesus, who lived the life that we failed to live and who died to death to pay for our sin. We thank you for the great and precious promises that are ours in him. And for the ability, the possibility to put our faith in Him. To be united to Him in life and in death. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not put their faith in Christ and trusted Him for time and eternity, I pray that You would move their hearts now that they would be on their knees to say, Jesus is Lord. He is my Lord and my King and I trust Him. And Him alone. Father, help us who believe Help our unbelief that these truths would capture our souls in such a way that though we pass through the valley of the shadow of death and grieving, we would know that You are with us. Your rod and Your staff are a comfort to us. That You never leave us nor forsake us and You will not abandon Your holy ones to the grave. Help us to see that day as our day as well as Yours.
by faith in Christ. Amen.